Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Downright Upright Show, the place to go to hear out loud and proud what Minnesotans are thinking, and I am your host, Philip Anthony. I am very excited that you've chosen to join us today, and I'm hoping you are all doing fantabulous. By the way, fantabulous is my word, fantastic and fabulous mixed together. So my listeners hear that all the time at the beginning. You're doing fantabulous, aren't you, Liz? I am always, especially since I'm here with you. Oh, well, thank you. My special guest today is Representative Liz Ryer, who currently represents District 51B, as in Bravo, and due to redistricting, is currently running for representative for District 52A, Alpha. So I'd like to welcome Representative Ryer to the Downright Upright Show. May I call you Liz today? Please do. Please okay, do. great. So before I start with the interview, I want to thank you so much um, I know that you're in the heat of a campaign right now, and it's crazy, and you're out there leaf-dropping and door-knocking and all this stuff. So thank you for spending your precious time with us on the Downright Upright Show. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'm uh, glad to be bet. here. We want your voice out there. That's why we, we invited you here. Um, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about your background, like um, where you were born, raised, and went to school and all that fun stuff? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Minnesota born and raised. Um, I was born on the east side of the Twin Cities, just three doors outside of St. Paul in Maplewood. Oh. Um, grew up with my parents, my two older brothers. Um, went to high school in North St. Paul, where they now have a plaque of uh, as a famous alumni, which is quite amazing to me. You have a plaque? That's what I'm told. With I have your a, name on it? I think so. I have to oh, go see it. I know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm probably some sort of goofy picture. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt that. Were you the yeah. oldest of the three? or No, middle? I'm the baby. The baby. Yes. I love the baby. The long-awaited daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Two boy, after two boys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, so you grew up in Maplewood. You were yep. born and raised in Maplewood, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And then you went to school where? Uh, for high school and college? Yeah, I went to North High uh, in North St. Paul. And then my first college experience uh, was at Augsburg. I mm -hmm. went there for three years. Um Realized I had no idea at all why I was in college or what I was going to do. And so I... So it was a liberal arts uh, uh -huh. program that you were in yep. at the time. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I had landed on urban planning um, as a major. Oh, okay. But didn't even really know, again, a why. So at that point, uh, I dropped out. My boyfriend and I hitchhiked around the country. Oh, nice. Yeah, we went out to New York. Uh, then we hitchhiked down to Tennessee. In your Volkswagen van? No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, on our thumbs. Purely on our thumbs. <laughs> no, I'm thumbs. thinking of this movie that yeah. I saw about that. Anyway. Um, yeah, and then across to Arizona. We stayed in Phoenix for a while. So it was really the 1977, um, you know, kids out on the road type of tour. Wow. Yeah, it was a great experience. Met some of the most interesting people. Uh, heard bagpipes played in a VW bus, which is... Uh, <laughs> That's what, I even mentioned that. I'm, yeah, exactly. I must be a psychic, you know, a psycho, or one of those. Yeah. Um, uh, did you, uh, what did you end up like majoring in? Like, Did you just stick to liberal arts, or did you pick a major eventually down the road? Yeah, I, I, when we came back here, I spent some years... Um, just living and working. I needed some time to 
to get settled. I worked in bars and restaurants. I worked at the Artist Quarter, which was a really great blues and jazz club at the time in wow. South Minneapolis. And I played music. I was. I ended up being a going back to school as a music major, uh, specializing in flute. But mm. at the same time, started studying Chinese um, because I just loved the language, and it was too hard to teach myself. And I ended up with a bachelor's degree in Chinese, um, and then went to um, wow. Ohio State as a graduate student in political science. Wow, amazing! And you know, the thing I heard about Chinese, and like I, I, I'm coming from like I know nothing kind of thing, is that you can say the word two different words, but the way the pitch is, is that my right? Mm-hmm. That you can change the whole. Can you explain, like yeah. really quickly explain what that is? Because I always found that fascinating. Yeah, Mandarin is a tonal language. Uh, it has four tones in neutral. So if you say ma, ma. Ma, ma. They all mean different things, ranging from mother to horse. Uh, You know, so they're very different. And to me, that's that's been one of the most challenging parts is to have that become part of the word and not something that's separate. Right. Uh, Cantonese, I think, has 11 different tones. No way. I think that's true. 11? Something like that, 9 or 11. Oh, my goodness. I have not ventured into that, but I still study Chinese. I, I take a Chinese class, conversational class every week. That is amazing. Have you ever been to mainland China? No, not yet. Oh, well, that should be on your bucket list because yeah. then you could really practice. <laughs> well, right, right when I was about to consider that kind of thing, um, my first child came along. Um, so I was a, a single mom, a graduate student. It really wasn't in the cards to... Uh, to go to uh, China at that point. And mm. It's never quite lined up yet, but there's still time. Yeah, yeah. Children, you know, when you have ch- kids, that's the dedication is just the children. You know, now that you're, um, and now you're, you're running for office, so that's going to be hard to just leave, you know. So, yeah, well, maybe when you're in your gray old, old days, you know, and like, uh, what do they call it? The best part of your life, they say retirement, right? You can go, yeah. you know, and see the Great Wall and all that fun stuff. I would love to see that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a particular incident in your life like that prompted you to uh, seek public office? In other words, did something creep into your mind to say, gee, I want to do this? Or was it uh, somebody motivated you? Or, I don't know, explain to the listeners what planted the seed for you to become a politician. Or I like to call it a public servant better than a politician has that negativity so I don't like to use that mm-hmm. word anymore yeah it was really incremental um, I first got involved in a campaign in 2006 and I was co-chair for uh, Sandra Mason in her first run for state house oh. um, and she won and and uh, I continued working on campaigns over the years um, as life permitted and schedules permitted uh-huh. um, at one point, Sandy was, um, I think, facing some health issues. I'm trying to, I don't recall the details, but she asked me if I would be available if there was a sudden special election. Mm-hmm. So, and that was back in maybe 09. Um, so, my husband and I had the conversation at that point about is this something that we would commit to as a family? Um, that didn't come to pass, but in 2017, after. Uh, 
the election where, um, yeah, the 2016 election, uh, I was looking at what I could do, and I formed a campaign committee at that point to run for House. Mm. Having heard that Sandy was going to retire, um, she decided not to, and so I spent the next couple of years working on other people's campaigns and recognizing that that terrible outcome in the election had come from the structural racism that um, just pervades our society and a, a backlash against uh, President Obama. Uh, I worked on campaigns for women of color uh, primarily, and um, some went through, some won, some didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I had been involved in campaigns for quite a few years. Then when Lori Halverson uh, decided to retire as representative in the House and run for county commissioner, that's when I was approached very specifically to run for her seat, which would be open. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up as uh, representing the area where you live. Yeah, you were my representative, yeah, and mm-hmm. and, and, and you were great. And um, I, I, I think when you – I want to go back to what you said because that, that really was important for the listeners to know – this othering thing, you know, when 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 the Republicans other people, you know, like using um, these scare tactics. Um, do you think that's what's causing this Trumpism to bubble up and you know pervade society? Because I I don't remember anything really quite as awful. I mean, I mean, there always was racism. I'm not going to say that, but I mean, it. Why is it bubbling up now? That's I guess what I'm. In your opinion, do you... Yeah, I mean, I think that he has given permission uh, to the people who feel that way and think that way to be much more candid and outspoken and proud of their thoughts and, and their hate and feel free to express it um, against the people who they want to other. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've also, though, um, have talked to enough people who are affected more directly, you know, and because of my privilege as a white woman, I haven't, you know, I didn't know how bad it was. Um, but when I've had conversations with um, people of color, uh, I've really become aware that it's it's a form of privilege to not realize how bad it was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. And and we have to listen to people. You know, listen to people of color. They're not they're not just saying these things because they're trying to cause problems. They they literally feel uh, threatened. They feel that they're not being treated properly. They don't feel like they have a voice. And uh, we have to listen. I think listening is is a skill that we're missing out on as well. You know, in in politics, you know, getting to, you know, there's always going to be Republicans and there's always going to be Democrats. So what the the only way to get things done is to listen to each other, and I don't think that's happening very much right now. And yeah, just one comment about that is that I would just—it's a nuance, but I would say it's not that they feel that they're threatened; they are threatened. Oh, uh, they well, aren't right. They're to. expressing them th- right, that they're but, threatened. But, yes, yeah. and we and have then, to listen to that right. and, and address it, and not just yeah. let it go in one ear and out the other. So that's mm-hmm. my my big point. Yes, yeah. I agree. I'm sorry. It should have 
specified that yeah. better. But yes, and 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 a lot of people um, in certain communities don't listen to that. They think that that oh, what about white people? You know, it's always that what aboutism? You know, mm-hmm. and you, uh, it's that that burns my. You know what? I mean, I just well. don't get that. Why you would. I mean, you didn't go through that, what they have gone through historically and up to the present time. So why are you, how can you say that you're being discriminated against Mm -hmm. in any way? You know, I mean, it's craziness. Anyway, um, so let's go to redistricting, your your favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How has redistricting affected you personally? And why is it that I am currently your constituent, but I won't be after this election, which makes me sad. But I love Ruth, too. And um, I love both of you. And you, do, you both do a bang-up job. So, But um, why is it that um, this is happening? Can you explain the whole, in a, sh- in a yeah. short kind of way, uh, what it, what what's going on? Yeah, it all comes down to the census. Um, every 10 years, we do a federal census. Uh, we find out how many people now live in a certain area. And then we readjust our political boundaries to reflect that so that representation remains even. Um, For example, in my district right now, the district I represent, 51B, I think there are 41,000 people, give or take. Mm -hmm. Um, In the new district that I'll represent and in in the new district that you will live in, there'll be more like 43,000 Now, that growth didn't happen evenly everywhere. And so we get redistricted, the lines get redrawn uh, to reflect the shifts in population. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the short version of why we have redistricting. It's it's a cause and effect. It's the the next step after we do the census. But but doesn't um, Minnesota do it a little more fairly than other states that actually the gerrymandering is very blatant and and racist basically where they Mm -hmm. take like i think i I, quote me if i'm wrong i think it's alabama or mississippi one of those states where they they have one predominantly african-american district and they're and they just lump them all together and you know they draw it really crazy lines and and they only have one representative in the whole state. In the meantime, they're like a, a huge percentage of the population of that state. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of terrible things that happen with um, drawing political boundaries um, all across the country. And and it is a real form of structurally um, disenfranchising yes. people mm-hmm. uh, based on their race and you know, assuming that that will also reflect their political leanings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in Minnesota, the way we have done it in the past is the House draws up a map, the Senate draws up a map, we try to come to agreement, and then the Supreme Court steps in and and does it. And that happened again this year. It was a little different because the census was delayed um, because of covid uh, it just took longer to do the data collection, going to people house by house to get the information. And so while the the House and the Senate were drawing up our maps, um, the House the, the the courts were also doing theirs at the same time to be ready just in case we couldn't come to agreement. Mm-hmm. 
And I have to say, I was so impressed by the House process. The committee went all over the state, had um, outlines, had conversations with people about the place where they live and what makes sense to have lines um, so that the, um, the, the districts in the state would really reflect the structure of communities. Uh, and I wasn't on the committee, but I listened to them and listened to some of the hearings. And it was really powerful to hear how much the voice of the people uh, was included in thinking about what the districts could be. Mm. And I think Minnesota, uh, out of most states anyway, I'm going to use, you know, uh, compare it to other states, is a lot more fair, like the, mm-hmm. what you just said, and Ruth Richardson also explained it, that, you know, you're getting, you're getting okay, the House says this and the Senate draws that, and then they don't, if they don't agree, then the Supreme Court will, you know, so it's not like, Control complete control by Republicans, and they just cut it like this crazy no. mosaic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and um, that's why we need to vote because yeah. if we if we can keep control, we can have much fairer boundaries and and districts in in this state and keep it this way. Mm-hmm. So um, let's keep our fingers crossed yeah. that that happens. One of the many reasons we all need to vote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amongst many others, like we'll, we'll get into. Um, so I know that you and Representative Scott Dibble, who um, I, I, I admire from afar, I've never met him, but I've watched him speak and um, on, on YouTube and things like that. And I read his platform and I think he's an amazing man. So um, uh, you and um, Representative Scott Dibble have introduced legislation protecting trans youth. Thank you for that, by the way. And the LGBT community is is getting going to start getting hit hard with this new Supreme Court. So I'm really afraid of that. Um, can you tell our listeners a little about that legislation and um, what it, it, it's it's um, the layout is and what's going to happen if it passes? Yeah, I'm really proud of that bill, um, Tim, and I was really honored uh, to be asked by Senator Dibble uh, to be a co-author on it. Uh, there were uh, a small group of us who were considering it, and I, I knew that I, I wanted to carry that on behalf of the trans youth who are just being so mistreated um, in our country and, and threatened in such a existential way, you know, just based on who they are as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the bill does is establish that Minnesota will be a state where if uh, kids and their families or caregivers come to Minnesota for gender-affirming care, um, Minnesota will not extradite, Minnesota will not prosecute, uh, Minnesota will be a refuge state for them mm-hmm. um, in every sense. Uh, it's modeled after legislation in California. And we are part of a movement, I want to say about a dozen and a half states maybe, Mm-hmm. have followed this um, model so that we have some consistency as well. No, but but but, but what's going to happen if the Republicans hold the Senate? Like, this is, oh, gonna, is, yeah, this we, is we dead do. in the water, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We could pass it in the House, and it has symbolic value. Right. And it sends a message, um, but right. it doesn't have force of law. Right. And like so many progressive pieces of legislation... They're not even getting heard in the Senate. 
Mm. Um, the committees are, you know, the party that's in the majority controls the committees. Yeah, that's and, right. Just like the federal uh, Senate, the mm-hmm. same thing, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the state house for that matter. Oh, boy. Well, again, that's another reason to go out and vote. See, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're enumerating the reasons, and then that's important. Yeah. I know you are a huge African, huge I almost said it like Bernie Sanders, a huge, very huge, uh, a huge advocate for women's reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, one of the biggest. As a member of the Reproductive Freedom Caucus, how important is it to preserve women's access to abortion care in our state? Abortion care is health care, and health care is a human right. And so it comes down to, it. to me, it's a fundamental basic right that all people should have the ability to determine for themselves what happens with their body. Yeah, yeah. And it's as simple as that. And to have government interference with that, setting limits, uh, even the limits that we have in Minnesota, is absolutely inappropriate and sets up, and we've seen the ripple effect already in states where uh, an abortion ban has been uh, put through after the Dobbs decision. You know, we see women who need treatment uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, for example, who can't take their medicine, can't receive their medicine because they might be pregnant, and that medicine is also used um, as part of a medical abortion. And mm. so pe- women's full spectrum of health care is being influenced by the fact that they might be a person who may be reproducing. It's so, so outrageous. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and I think to, to inject this into what you're saying, um, and, and you could agree or disagree, I think down the road we're going to find out that a lot of doctors, OBGYN, gynecologists, are going to leave the, the states that they can't feel free to practice. If they, their hands mm-hmm. are tied why, uh, mm-hmm. and they're going to get sued if they do something, why would they want to stay in that state? Do you agree with that? I, I, I see that coming down the road. I do too. And, I, and it's, they're not even just going to get sued. They're going to get imprisoned if you believe oh, some, you well, know, yeah, you, like You're absolutely three right. Three to six years for, uh, for an abortion. I, it's... Yeah. I it's, love when you put it into perspective because I'm always thinking on the bright side. Oh, they'll just get you know sued. Oh, now they're going to go to jail. So like this is yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, why? The only reason I can imagine that you would want to stay is to have some solidarity with the people you can't treat, or or, or also because it's your home. Yeah, so you're being yeah. driven from your home and from doing the work that, to me for most doctors, is a calling, mm-hmm. and you're having your ability to practice at the level where you can be saving lives, you can be helping people flourish, you can be giving them the service that they want, and they're entitled to want, entitled to ask for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, during COVID, I remember um, how certain people, which will remain nameless, were demonizing the health community, healthcare community, the nurses, the doctors, the para, paramedics, um, and, and a lot of them were being spat at, people throwing rocks at them, and uh, we need these people. These are the people that take care of us when we're sick. 
you know, I don't understand this whole demonization of doctors and nurses and it just, it, it, it's so disturbing to me. Uh, what do you, do you feel the same way or um, can you elaborate on my, my feelings? I mean, it's crazy to me. I share the emotion, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have just watched it, mm-hmm. you know, and you see, you know, at first they were the heroes and we couldn't, you know, people were banging pans in the street in appreciation. Mm-hmm. But then they became the people who were saying COVID is real, and they were they were wearing masks, and they were doing things that flew in the face of the anti-science crowd, mm-hmm. and then they beca- became the enemy, because there is um, there's so much of creating an em- enemy in our society. Uh, you referred to the othering early on. Uh, and it's all the way the enemy image. Um, there's a book to that name that's been out since maybe the 70s or 80s. But in order to attack, in order to um, demean people, you have to create an enemy. And that's what I see uh, happening in our society. And I, I will say I, I talk to people on both sides of from right to left. And I hear a lot more enemying happening coming from my colleagues on the right. Mm-hmm. And, and aren't, aren't there sick people on the right? I mean, that look to doctors and nurses and, you know, I mean, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be political, in my opinion. It, this is yeah. medical. I mean, you know, people are taking, uh, doctors are taking a Hippocratic oath to take care of people. And they're doing the best they can. And then we and, and and you know to go off on a tangerine a little bit here, you, um, that yeah tangerine it's cute. yeah it's cute yeah, um, the man I won't even say his name I know. that's running for governor who was a doc, who is a doctor if I'm not mistaken he is just awful <laughs> I mean I mean it, he he's against vaccinations and and denying this and that and. Ta- saying, kid, I, my last interview with uh, Mike Sapina, he brought this up to me. I didn't even know about this. That he's saying the kids are uh, identifying as cats and they need litter boxes and they're going to bath to the bathroom in the classroom in a litter. I mean, this is a this is a doctor that's running for governor. I mean, uh, am I crazy? <laughs> what is going on? Well, and and that that whole thing about perpetuating the furry myth of, of children pretending or thinking they're cats, identifying as cats. There's a couple things there. One, it's been thoroughly debunked. Two, it has of nothing course. to do with him being a doctor. Any serious human would not perpetuate that. And three, it's an attack on people, um, the LGBTQ community, the trans community, of saying that we're people who are not serious and our our Making identity a joke out of it. Mm-hmm. is is just like saying you think you're a cat. Give mm-hmm. me a break. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't know one trans person that thinks they're a cat. I, I mean, it's so demeaning to me. As yeah. a, as a gay man, I could look at, you know, I mean. When when this is this is a medical issue too. I mean, if you you know when people are are you know have uh, you know they look at themselves and and they don't see what their body represents. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's an issue that should be taken up very seriously. It's not a joke. 
Well, the level of depression and anxiety oh, and God, the suicide yeah. rates are heartbreaking. It's terrible. And the violent attacks, um, mm-hmm. especially on trans uh, black, black trans women, women yeah. mm-hmm. is is terrifying um, and outraging. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, if I could do anything single-handedly, um, somehow I would um, lift that wall of hate. And I don't know how you do that. To me, I've been trying to do it through trying to communicate, incite empathy um, with people who... That's the magic word, Liz, yeah. empathy. There's no empathy. People look at them as freaks and like it's, it's not normal, normal, quote-unquote. This is this is a condition that people feel, and and like we were talking about listening before, mm-hmm. how, how we have to listen to people. Nobody listens to them. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're talking. They're they're voicing their concerns. They're saying, "This is what I feel. I I don't feel comfortable th- this way, and this is what I need." And instead of just going, "Okay, we'll address that concern." They're making a joke out of it, and especially this guy running for governor is making a joke out of it and con- comparing it to. Which is not like you said; it's not even happening. Nobody's nobody thinks they're a cat, and and there's no litter boxes in schools, and and it's just. Oh, I, when I heard that, when Mike Sapina was telling me about that, I was, I thought he was joking at first because you know he's a he's a fun guy, you know, and he, he he likes to joke around. And then I looked at him, and he he was serious as a heart attack, and I was like, "You're serious." Mm-hmm. And then when I saw it on the news, I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. I know what a way for Minnesota to be showing up on CNN. Oh Boy, my doing goodness. our state proud, wasn't he? Yeah, the, it was on national news and all the. Uh, we look like a bunch of nuts now because mm-hmm. of him, you know. Anyway, let's move on from that gentleman. And and <laughs> look, here's another plug to get out and vote. Uh, oh yeah, vote the whole ticket. Uh, vote statewide. Everybody, get out and yep. vote. From Governor Walls all the way down to City Council oh. to you know State House, State <laughs> House, yeah, um, uh, everything. Yeah. Dog catcher, everything. You know, yeah. mayor, judges, judges. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you know, healthcare in America is tied to a job. It's the only country in the world that I can think of where that's the case. What can we do or what can you do if elected in the future to make sure federal funds can be allocated to expanding health care to all people in our state? In other words, if, can't, if we can't do it federally, mm-hmm. you know, could we do state in the well, state? Well, yeah, we're working on a, the statewide solution of the Minnesota Health Plan. And I'm one uh, one of the House co-chairs of the uh, Minnesota Health Plan Caucus, uh, so-called, you know. Uh, It is essentially universal health care using the John Marty, Senator John Marty model. Uh, There's a book by the same name. You can get it free as a PDF, I think, if you just Google Minnesota Health Plan. And, you know, as any piece of legislation is, it would... It would change and evolve as we go forward, but the vision of it, which I think needs to remain intact, is that all services are available to all people um, that aren't uh, purely um, optional, like cosmetic, you know, for non-reconstructive purposes. So, you know, there's some, uh, like a common sense exception, but reproductive care, um, 
all sexual health care, mental health care, hearing, vision, dental, the whole body, the whole mind, uh, all of it would be covered in a way that stops the bankrupting. Bankrupty. <laughs> Bankrupting. Bankrupting. <laughs> yeah. That. I got your point. <laughs> Believe me, I, I make a lot of my, uh, I can't pronounce certain words that I have to do it 62 times. And But it would stop the bankrupting of people, which incidentally happened to my mom after my dad died. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, she couldn't pay my father's bills. final medical bills. Oh, geez. And ended up declaring bankruptcy. Hmm. Um, and to me, that's a bankrupt system, yeah. uh, you know, and yeah. it's a system without a heart. So I've worked in the healthcare system for much of my career. I worked at Blue Cross for 12 years in research and in operations. And then as a consultant, I um, had as clients United Health Group, Aetna Cigna, other blues. Um, and to me, I, I, um, I see the places where there is inefficiency just structured into it. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the employer-based system. That was a system that was uh, designed back in World War II when there were wage freezes and employers wanted a way to attract workers, so they gave them the health benefits as something that they couldn't change the wages, but they could give them another value add. And it's grown into a system that creates um, tiers in practice of access to care. Uh, someone like me, I've got a good employer-based system from a large company through my husband. Um, other people uh, who are self-employed are out on the individual market or the small group market, and they're lucky to get something they can afford that has a huge thousands of dollars of deductible. Mm -hmm. um, and less access to care. Uh, knocking doors, people talk to me about the trauma they're going through related to health care. You know, prescriptions that cost $500, $1,000 to get filled, and what are they going to do about that? Um, and so what can we do? I think we need to pass legislation that simplifies the health care system, removes barriers between and layers between individuals and the people who are providing their care. And, you know, then you can say, um, we in fact have a healthcare system that's person-centered, provider-centered, and care-centered. Yes, wellness-centered. Because isn't it right now the system that we have in this country is, 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 is profit-motivated? It's not you know, these companies are trying to make money. They, they, it, wellness is not the goal anymore, mm -hmm. you know. I don't even know if it ever was, but, uh, you know, before Obamacare was passed, um, uh, and this is just appalling to me, you were able, uh, an insurance company was able to drop you if they wanted to, right? If you were costing mm -hmm. them way too much money, I mean, your health should be, paramount you know to you know i don't understand why it's money and not health right and the whole concept of pre-existing conditions yes um, that too yeah yeah is like okay you had something happen once you're no longer eligible for coverage for for that or or it was up to the insurance company to decide what kind of coverage you could have yes 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 and um thank god for obamacare because there's a lot of people that, is, that are alive today because of it 
Mm-hmm. If you yeah. think about that, yeah. and that was just a drop in the bucket. We needed, we need, you know, healthcare, widespread healthcare for everyone. But this was a first good step because people were being, like I said, being dropped. Um, you, you, if you had a, a, a non-curable disease or you needed palliative care or whatever, oh no, this is going to cost way too much money at this point. We'll, we'll just drop you. And this was a wonderful thing that saved many, many, many lives. And and the thing with the 26, you had to be 26 years old to stay on your parents. I mean, this kept kids in school. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that, that legislation. I hope it, you know, it goes through and we, we can, we have to get the Senate, though. We do have to get the Senate. And one of the things we're doing with that legislation is a series of forums around the state. We had one in Rochester Already, we're going up to North Metro this coming Saturday to do a forum with four different members of the community, uh, the business community, uh, Rose Roach from the Minnesota Nurses Association, a couple other people who are all coming together and talking about the need for uh, the Minnesota Health Plan and for universal coverage. And there'll be a, um, myself and a fellow uh, co-chair from the Senate, uh, Jen Mc- Senator Jen McEwen will be there. Um, all just building awareness and sharing information and hearing other people's stories about their experience with our current healthcare system because you really need to know from all the different perspectives what works, what doesn't, in order to have a good solution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, thank you for this. This is something mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping, this is my one of my number one concerns in, 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 is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're elected to represent uh, District 52A, is that right? <laughs> I don't get confused. This November, what are some other top issues that you would like to see take priority? So this is like an open forum now for you to tell the listeners what other things you have on your bucket list and in the pipeline for to improve the lives of Minnesotans. Mm-hmm. One of my top priorities is taking on the climate crisis. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. We need to be um, making different choices about where we get our energy, how we use our energy, how we prevent energy from being wasted um, between when it's generated and and the end of its cycle. Um, what I mean by that is um, I was uh, lucky enough to be chosen to go to a... Um, seminar in Germany. It's an annual event with legislators, uh, energy, um, utilities, uh, regulators, and entrepreneurs uh, under the auspices of the U of M. And it's sponsored by the German government to share information and learning and to all be able to better manage energy. Um, And one of the things that we found is like about half of the energy that's generated doesn't get used maybe like 56 percent and so if you think about that it's getting lost in the process of being generated of being transmitted from generation through the transmission system to the use system it's going out our windows it's going out our doors it's not getting used properly in industry i mean so there's all this waste that we could be recapturing and reusing Um, just think about heat waste you know heat goes out smokestacks, just to simplify, that heat is energy. So how do you bring that heat back in? 
and generate it through. It's thinking about being really innovative about all the different ways we mm-hmm. can do those things. Um, moving into things like heat pumps for houses. Um, breaking- Ge- geothermal. Geothermal, yeah. That's a wonderful one. Yeah, Iceland is, I think, 99% geothermal, isn't it? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. They li- they live in the right place for that. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and Germany is is doing a lot with... Uh, they ran into one of the same problems that we had here down in southwestern Minnesota, that they were generating uh, energy from the uh, wind turbines, but there wasn't room in the grid for it. Um, in Germany, they're doing a couple of things. Um, they're doing district heating, where they take that and they put it directly into heat water to heat buildings. Mm. Uh, they are converting it into green hydrogen for fueling things that cannot be electrified, like shipping and airplanes and certain factories. So they're looking at how do we um, take action, use this energy closer to the source, or how do we become able to move it around in a way that is uh, uh, net zero. Mm. And um, it was... It was fascinating. There's so much we could be doing here. Absolutely. And, and, um, and I was very, very pleased that all of the different players in the system were there. It wasn't just people who believed in, in change. It was people who were going to have to put that change into action and regulate that action. And it comes back to having all of the parties' different viewpoints at the table to say, how do we solve a problem? We have all the stakeholders there. We have all the people who are are affected and make sure that we're all talking together so that we anticipate problems and solve them, um, anticipate risks and address them before we put a solution in place and then have it maybe not be as optimal as it could be. Yeah. I wonder if you heard this um, news report that was a couple of weeks ago when, when Hurricane Ian had hit Florida there was one community, it was on the news, this fascinated me, that they they use 100% solar energy. They had solar panels all over the place. And the, the you know, the, the thing was, you know, the, on the right, they were saying, oh, well, they'll blow, you know, the wind is going to pick them up and they're going to blow and they'll, you know, be projectiles and be, you know, be damaged. Not one solar panel they were made so well they were made for that community for florida not one left was broken was was picked up from the wind um uh, destroyed by water nothing and and other places in florida as you know they generate they needed generators they had no Mm -hmm. electricity went out and that was the only community in that hurricane where they had energy they had lights, they had heat, they had, I mean, uh, heat, yeah, air conditioning. <laughs> I mean, they had everything like as if the, the storm didn't happen. And I was fascinated by that. I yeah. did not hear about that. Yes, I it was on CNN. And, I, I, and, and forgive me for not remembering the name of the community, but if, if you Google it, you'll find the name. And, and it was fascinating. It was a report on CNN. I would encourage all the listeners to to look at it because solar is an amazing form of of energy, and, um, it, and those panels are not. Don't listen to people. They say, "Oh, they they crack and they break, and you need they, they don't work." Not true. Look at this. Through a whole hurricane, they're still there and they were intact. And these people had their lights. They had their their food was kept well. 
um, their air conditioning, everything. It was that it was just mind-boggling to me. Well, and building solar panels is, you know, just another economic opportunity for Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And it's an industry that is not location-dependent. It could be outside of the metro. It could be in northwestern Minnesota. It could yeah. be southeastern Minnesota. They, they, they could be establishing uh, factories to be making the equipment and the materials we need for wind and solar here in the state and creating good jobs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, jobs. I mean, renewable energy is, is so important in, in this day and age. I mean, look, today is um, October. Let me look at the, Do you know what today's date is? October's 11th. 11th. It is going to be 79 degrees in October. Mm-hmm. Now, how many times can you remember in your lifetime living in Minnesota this late into October, it was 79 degrees. I don't know. Maybe you can. I don't know. But I'm not good at remembering <laughs> dates. <laughs> so when I people forget my anniversary. Talk about, so. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, when people talk about climate change, uh, uh, mm-hmm. this is a perfect example. So we need, all, we need an all-in approach. Yeah. You know, wind, solar, uh, geothermal. Everything that is to make uh, uh, us more, uh, our planet more uh, thrive mm-hmm. in a better way than it is now. So my overarching um, vision for doing policy is that if we look at um, climate change and climate resiliency and climate, climate adaptation on the one hand, mm-hmm. and we look at racial inequity and injustice and structural racism on the other, And then we say, we have to work on, oh, let's make it up, housing policy. Mm -hmm. If we're thinking about how do we address disparities and how do we build this this housing or remodel this housing in a way that's climate-centric, we're going to have much better housing policies than if we just hadn't, it hadn't occurred to us. To think about those things. Yes. So that's my overarching approach to policy making, whether it's housing, I'm on that committee, and, and that's another huge need that we have is affordable housing, and people just simply don't have enough places to live and that they can afford. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Just in Dakota County, we have so many people who are rent burdened, paying 30, 40, 50 percent of their rent, yeah, yeah, yeah. their income for rent. So how do we how do we bring those lenses together and do policy that that ticks a bunch of boxes in terms of making improvements and that's that's how I le- I legislate. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Well, now we've come to uh, the part of the show I like to call the shift, where I shift the questioning away from your job as a representative for the state and into your opinion of national current events. How's that sound? So, Sounds fun. So this is something where you 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 have input, you can make a difference, and now this is something that is more out of your hands, but that you think that you can give advice or your opinion to making things things better for for our our country now. Mm-hmm. So as you know, many states are uh, making it much more difficult for certain Americans to exercise their franchise, uh, their right to vote. Um, if you were able, what could Congress do? In other words, if you were in Congress and you were able, uh, what uh, could they do to ensure equal access of all Americans to the ballot box? What, what would be some things you would bring forward? Uh, 
Well, I know there has been legislation offered and not passed um, that would codify election rights, um, and I would certainly move forward with that. And to me, it needs to allow people to... Um, we need more flexibility on when and how people can vote. I'm seeing the erosion in terms of closing polling stations um, in communities that have a higher um, percent of population of color, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, people, that needs to stop um, enabling mail-in voting, um, early voting, uh, taking out the barriers that make it difficult or inconvenient, not requiring ID, which can be a barrier for the elderly, for students, for people of color, low-income people, new citizens. I mean, there are so many different people who can have a barrier to getting the kind of ID, and it, it creates a, 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 a scarcity mentality around being able to vote when we should, every one of us should want every eligible person to be able to vote. Um, in Minnesota, people can't vote um, if they're on parole or probation after having served time for a felony. And Minnesota has one of the longest uh, probation and uh, parole periods in the country. And mm. so we're disenfranchising people much beyond their time as a felon. And some states don't take the right to vote away from people even when they're incarcerated. So even if they paid their dues already, they're still... Yeah, ineligible. That's another Correct. word I can't pronounce. Ineligible to vote. Correct. Craziness. Yeah. So at a national level, um, looking at that, you know, taking a look, and I have not studied the voting rights legislation that's out there now, um, but I would want to make sure that it was looking at all of the different ways that voting rights are interfered with, uh -huh. and putting into law. Uh, that the we what a fair, open, and honest election system looks like, and holding us to that standard. Now, um, uh, some people have said, I don't know how, what your opinion is to this, you, you can address it, that um, the government should mail out to all people eligible voters um, so that, in other words, people that have a social security number and that, you know, they, they or they've been naturalized or whatever, send them a card in the mail. They don't have to go pick it up. It's mailed to your door. And that would be your, your proof that you can vote. Uh, what do you think of that? That's, is that a happy medium between the, the one side saying you have, to, you have to vote on election day only and you can't, you know, or, and then the other side where you just, you know, they say that people are picking ballots out of the, which is ridiculous. I've heard that one. Oh, there were people mailed three ballots and they were mailed three times. I mean, voted three times. To me, I don't know how that's possible because I know I only get one. <laughs> and, and you and you fill out your name, you have your you know uh, uh, your card and the whole deal, and you your, your driver's license number and everything. So, what do you think about that middle ground uh, to it? I mean, if that's your only ticket to vote, I don't favor it because we've all had things lost in the mail. Uh, I don't think Yeah, that that's... was my concern, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's And some not... people fall through the cracks. You may not get your yeah. card for yeah. whatever. You may move. Um... Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't 
think that's a very good idea. Well, that's that, no disrespect for the to the USPS, but I don't think that's no, a no, very no. Good yeah, idea. no. I, well, I'm just playing. De- I, sometimes yeah, yeah. I like to play no, devil's sure. advocate, try to give two sides of the coin. But um, I, I hear you. I think if you rely on something like that and you move, or you, um, like you said, the, it gets lost in the mail, or it goes to somebody else's house, or whatever. Or it gets lost on my kitchen counter in the stack <laughs> of other stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, 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 yeah. But the, the other thing is that you, you do have to establish who you are when you register to vote. Uh, you, you think? With a driver's <laughs> license or the last four digits of your social security number, it's not just that you go in and say your name and say, okay, you can vote. There are standards that are enforced. Uh, and so to me, it's like, let's just keep enforcing the standards that have been working very well, uh, at least here in Minnesota, where we have virtually no um, issues with our vote. Mm-hmm. Because well, they're saying, again, devil's advocate, that we can't trust the vote. They were the people were taking ballots, um, uh, you know, um, and stuffing uh, ballot boxes and what are the, uh, those drop boxes? I meant to say, um, and that's why they were removing them in red states because they said they were stuffing them, putting extra ballots in there, and, and I don't know how you could do that. I mean, I, I mean, I know that there are applications for ballots being mailed to people, but. That's not a ballot. That's an application for a ballot. So if you if you stuffed the box with an application, it wouldn't count. Yeah. So what is there? What what leg do they have to stand on about this? None. Um, Thank you. I mean, those yeah. those things have been debunked. The examples that people have raised have either had absolutely no objective information. Um, provided or have again been debunked and, and shown as like no, that didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. But the misinformation keeps getting repeated. It's dangerous, and and the sixty yep. percent of of a particular party of, of the constituents of that party that actually believe the election was rigged. They think that it wasn't fair. Of I mean, course they do, because that's what they keep being told, and it becomes this echo chamber. Is like. It wasn't fair, it wasn't fair, it wasn't fair. And the voter says, well, I don't know if I can believe it was fair. And then the 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 spokespeople or the politicians say, yeah, see, people are saying they don't think it's fair. It's like, well, you were feeding that to them. Of course they're yes, saying that. Yes. And, and my next question actually segues into this. <laughs> On a prior show, I asked Representative Ruth Richardson about the preservation of democracy. And now I'd like to ask you, about the very same question. Uh, what can be done to restore faith in our institutions as opposed to spreading misinformation that the election was stolen? Is there anything that can be done? Or are these people just, it's just there and it's, it was a seed planted by you-know-who, Voldemort. I keep using that term because the name we shall not mention. And um, <laughs> are you a Harry Potter fan? <laughs> I am. Very good. Yeah, um, yeah. Ra- I, Ravenclaw. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love I love Harry Potter. It's great. Um, no, but this is something that I mean. First of all, what evidence? I mean, you haven't. I mean, you you appointed all these judges, okay, and they all looked at you like you had three heads. This this is not happening. There was no cheating going on. Even even Barr, 
Attorney General Barr, who was like his personal attorney, even said, no, we, now you're crossing a line here. This is not happening. And he still, to this very day, the day of this taping of the show, he still has been going out on the campaign trail, you know, helping his, uh, you know, surrogates get elected so that he could, when he runs, he, they could pick the electors they want and let him be president. Uh, he's still saying the election was stolen and we're being we have election deniers in Minnesota uh, representing us in the U.S. Um, House of Representatives. Um, we have candidates. Our secre- the Republican Secretary of State candidate Kim Crockett is an election denier. Yeah, I saw her on TV uh, talking about that. Yeah. And so, how do we do it? I think by continuing to organize and to make sure that believing and Propagating this lie is a ticket to lose your election, to lose your platform, uh, to be uh, marginalized. And um, I mean, I, I think if I worry about having it amplify because more people who are are spreading that um, beca- are getting elected. Yeah. Uh, but it's this the answer is you know organize, go out work on this election. We've got four weeks left. I don't know how long after when this finally, when this actually airs. Um, It'll be before the election. Yeah. Go out, make, get out the vote phone calls, get out the door, get out the vote door knock, write postcards, get out the vote work is actually really fun for people who might be nervous about phone calls or uh, door knocking because you're not trying to persuade anyone. You're just going to people who have already stated a preference and saying, remember to vote. What's your plan to vote? And people are, are really quite happy and glad to see you. So that's my plug for yeah, yeah. for getting out and helping. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I heard something re- recently that I never thought of, and, and I want maybe your feedback from this. Lawn signs are actually helping get the vote out. I've had people say people, they were sitting on their porch or in their yard and they had a lawn sign out. There, oh, you're vo- who's that? Oh, I'm voting for them. And they believe in A, B, C, D, E. Mm-hmm. And the person goes, oh, okay, can I write that name? And then just from looking at them, and if you see a lot of your neighbors you know, interested in the same candidate, you start thinking maybe this is the person I should be voting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? Is that, is that something that the reason you think behind lawn signs being a, uh, important? Because um, before people didn't really think they were important. Yeah, I mean, the truism is lawn signs don't vote. But um, I do think there's a, there's a role for name recognition. Oh, yeah. Um, because... You get to the ballot and you haven't heard of any of the names, it's going to be pretty arbitrary. So just getting your name onto people's consciousness is useful. I mean, marketing people spend their careers doing that in consumer packaged goods. So, you know. But my point was that if this one person said that to this individual, what about people driving by and going, "Hmm, there's a name there, I'm going to look that up. It, and, it has and, happened. I've I've heard people have said to me when I've called them or door knocked, "Yeah, I saw your name and I looked at I looked you up and yeah, I agree I with what your, you said." 
Yeah, yep, absolutely. I have literally had that happen. Yes. Even if it's one vote, think about it. Mm-hmm. Some some of these elections, you know, what are they, like 10 votes sometimes they come down to? I mean, especially in these smaller uh, elections like state rep or uh, state center um, or, or even city council members, mm-hmm. uh, judges, they, they come down to like a, sometimes two-digit numbers, right? Well, Al Franken's win did too. How many votes one. was his? I don't remember. A couple of hundred, I want to say. Yeah, but that was a, yeah. but that's a state. That's that was a, a statewide st- election, yeah, which is crazy. Election. Yeah, when you think about it. Um, okay, so um, President Biden gets blamed for inflation when the fact is that the entire world has felt the effects of the supply chain problems due to COVID, and the fact that the former president placed tariffs on all goods imported from China, which in turn raised the prices of those goods. Meanwhile, President Biden signed a bill capping the prices of certain prescription drugs, helped students with their loans, created blue-collar infrastructure jobs, passed the CHIP bill so these items can be made here in America, and many other bills that help ordinary people. Why are Democrats not able to get that message out that they are truly the party of working club? What do you think is holding this... Uh, because you, I guess you know when you talk about inflation, people just blame the party in power. But if they don't know why it's happening, right? But all of these things that I enumerated that he has signed, why isn't that um, penetrating certain people's uh, idea of who they should vote for? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I think some of it is that. Um the GOP has been very good at um, honing a few fear-driven messages, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I'll, I'll own this. It's very easy for Democrats to get into the nuance of policy, but I think the other thing is that it's the immediacy. Um, getting a job as a result of the infrastructure bill is is great and it's more remote than the price of a dozen eggs and so people are feeling the immediate pain and ask to trust in longer term benefit and Mm -hmm. you know i think that could be a piece of it yes i've also had people just flat out reject um the idea that the uh war and regression in ukraine has anything to do with gas prices and more recently that the opec decision um, to cut production has and will have anything to do with it. It's like, yeah, all these if things. You, yeah. you know, these things really do affect it. And yeah, then, but you, but we're, but we're educated voters. We understand yeah. those things. But just just the fact, if you're if somebody who doesn't pay attention to the news, goes to the grocery store and looks at the price of a container of milk or eggs, and they're like, oh my God, it's President Biden. Now, if you were a smart voter, you know, I'm, this is this is what I'm going to. I'm going to address, if, if anybody out there is not a Democrat and you want me to ask, you know, I, I want to ask you this question. What is the Republican response to that? What are they going to do to change that trajectory of the, the prices? Because remember, we live in a capitalistic country. The president cannot call up, um, um, you know, uh, the egg company and say, you know, you need to lower the price. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, they can't do that. So what is their, what is the Republican response to inflation? They haven't said anything, have they? They're going to take your guns. 
Oh, is that it? Okay. Distraction. Ah. Oh, and the, and and the litter boxes in the schools. <laughs> Seri- seriously, seriously, it's, it's distraction. Yeah, you know what? It's a it's an echo chamber that immigrants. They, immigrants. Yeah. You one person says litter boxes, and it goes to the next person, and the next person hears that. And, and then all of a sudden, you're not talking about the price of eggs anymore. Exactly. See, you got it. Yeah, yeah. You're not talking about, but they're not going to address that issue. I have yet to hear one Republican say what they would do differently. But remember when the in Washington, when they had the House, the Senate, and the presidency, they couldn't come up with a replacement to the Affordable Care Act. They couldn't even. Um, uh, take yeah. it out of law, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. they, and they don't have any answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All they all they want to do is obstruct. I think that's their main mission, in, if you ask me. But that's yeah. my opinion. And I have to say, I've, I've been talking to people about this on the campaign trail. Is that I would really, sincerely like to have a um, uh, a second party that was a party of ideas that was driven by values, um, had alternatives in mind. Because then we could put the problem in the middle of the table, and all of those different perspectives would give us a better outcome. And I've been really disappointed in the extent to which we do not have that right now, at least not in the Minnesota uh, House, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. House and Senate. Well, my next question, this one's important as well. I'm sure you agree that the Republicans are a noun and a verb in the border. That's all you hear. If you listen to Fox News, you would, that's all you hear. The border. The border, the border. What can Democrats do to shut down this fake narrative that the border is completely wide open when the law all over the world says anyone in danger in their home country has the right to seek asylum at the border, uh, uh, at the port of entry of that country, uh, whatever country they wish to seek asylum at? So don't they understand that we have asylum laws now now trump was able to oh i said his name uh, <laughs> trump was able to keep people back because of covid and that's the only thing he had that he could do because he couldn't change asylum laws what's your opinion about this i don't think people who are saying border 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 are concerned about the uh legal niceties of asylum law mm-hmm. because it doesn't if you go to well of course they're legitimate and having this many people is is a logistical problem mm-hmm. which undoubtedly it is um, but they're very busy um, propagating hate and fear and so it's an excellent tool mm-hmm. um, I'm talking think- about fentanyl the fentanyl is coming uh, on airplanes and boats, it's not. I mean, if, if it comes through the border, it's coming at a very small amount. And and, and on top of that, uh, uh, we have. Uh, I'm sure you know this that the wall does not prevent fentanyl from coming here. There are things called tunnels, well, and airplanes, that, that helicopters, boats. Yeah. I mean, people are so ridiculous when they think that that the wall is going to be the be all and end all of fentanyl in this country. I mean, it's crazy. Well, and there was a report that uh, I don't remember a vast amount of of illegal drugs were stopped at the border, and they were outraged. The right was outraged about it. It's like, wait, what? It worked. They were it, they outraged. Were, they were, yeah, because the drugs were coming to the border, and they, and they were like, 
it was like, no, uh-huh. you missed the lead there. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, got yeah. caught. They got stopped. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, the other thing I would say about that is that it brings us back to our earlier topic of racism because the immigrant um, line is very much directed up against um, bra- uh, black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And you don't hear it so much about... Um, immigrants who would be coming from Eastern Europe. Um, maybe we'd have Ukrainians come. Mm-hmm. That's um, not a problem, no. Right. But even Trump said it. You know, he said, uh, "Why don't we get more immigrants from Norway and Sweden?" <laughs> you know, because yeah. I mean, he, he he says that he says the what he feels out loud sometimes. You know, when he mm-hmm. was talking about the Mexicans, you know, they're bringing drugs, bringing crime, and some of them are good people too. You know, anyway, unfortunately, Liz. We have come to the end of the show. Did you enjoy it? It's been great. Yeah, it's been fun, yeah. right? Did, was there anything you wanted to say before we close out? Because, uh, I, you know, it, it's kind of an abrupt ending. I just looked at the time. I'm like, oop, we're running long here. Um, um, please vote. Please help get good people elected. Uh, amen. And please join me in thanking Philip for this great podcast. Oh, thank you. I hope people do enjoy it. And, and I, I, I'm trying to do my public service. That's what I'm doing this for. Um, so for more uh, information about Representative Liz Ryer, you can follow her on Facebook, on Facebook at Ryer, um, it's, I'm sorry, L Ryer. 52A. So it's at L R E Y E R 52A. Is that right? And uh, on Twitter at Ryer for House. And she has a website. Wow. LizRyer.com, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Easy so, to remember. And it'll be posted on this uh, next to the, the, the uh, podcast as well. And I'd like to thank uh, Representative Ryer for sharing her precious time with us on the Downright Upright Show. And I'd like to thank our listeners for spending time with us today. And please stay tuned for more episodes on the Downright Upright Show in the future. And this is your host, Philip Anthony, saying ciao for now. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.